Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin. In the summer of 2021, myself, Leah West, and Michael Nesbitt looked at the legalities behind the June 2021 London attack, which killed four members of a family and seriously injured a nine-year-old boy. While this legal discussion is crucial, it's important to reflect on the impact that this is having on the Muslim community and Canadian national security. To do this, I'm joined by Fatima Sayed, the Vice President of the Canadian Association of Journalists, a reporter at the Narwhal, and host of one of my favorite podcasts, The Backbench at Canada Land. Fatima, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. So I'll I'll get right to it. We entered 2021 with a series of ongoing attacks against hijab-wearing Black women in Alberta, saw a horrific attack against a family in London, Ontario, and ended it learning that a woman had been removed from the classroom in Quebec because she wears a hijab. And I can only think for anyone paying attention, this is exhausting. And I know that you've been paying attention. So I guess I just wanted to start with, how do you approach your coverage of these issues? and, And what are some of the challenges you face? I mean, if I'm being perfectly candid, sometimes I choose not to cover the issue. And it's a very difficult decision to to make because they're they hit home and and they really devastate your emotional and, and physical well-being as someone who's from that community and as someone who loves that community. But the moments where I have to, I'm thinking back to how I covered the London attacks and how I had to connect the dots to everything else that was happening at that time. You have to, as a Muslim reporter, you remind yourself that there is no one better to tell and share the impacts of what this means to your community and the wider community that you're linked to than yourself. And it's this really heavy responsibility, but it's 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 one that almost brings the best reporter out of you. You train yourself to speak not only to your community and say, you know, show them that you fully understand what's going on and will, to the best of your ability, show everyone else what's going on. But you also train yourself to talk to those who aren't part of the community and say, this is why this sucks so much. And this is why it hurts so much. And this is why we need you all to be worried. Because hate, as you know, Stephanie, more than I do because of all your research, it, it creates a ripple effect that is endless. It, it, it doesn't stop at any one community. It just spreads without rationale, without logic, without thought and understanding how it impacts one community can, as perverted as it sounds, help another community prepare for the worst and and understand how to be better friends and neighbors and and so forth. So it's it's a big task to cover hate. And it's not an easy task. It's not as simple as, you know, you know, the journalism tell the five W's who, what, where, when, why. You you suddenly have to get into the how, but what does it all mean? And why is this so significant? And why should you all care about this? There's just multiple added layers to a story uh, about hate. So you have to brace yourself, take a deep breath and just just plunge in and do your best job. I, I think that point that you raised, though, the one where you're saying, you know, hate begets hate is absolutely correct, though. I mean, and I, I think this is just important. I know you've you've covered this and looking at some of how so, you know, using some of my research, which is a nice collab before the podcast, I guess. But um, the the fact that you know the way that some of these extremist movements are moving in anti-vax circles and then that kind of hate there then spreads out to other 
different groups. I mean, the, we see it with the, you know, Islamophobia, we see this moving into anti-Semitism. There's all different kinds of things. I think that's just a really important point that you're making about, you know, it's not just one community that's affected by this. It's, it's, first of all, it's like, it's a Canadian issue, Canadian problem. And then secondly, that it's a, a, you know, just because it's targeting one community doesn't mean that other communities won't be affected as well. And, and there are some tragic lessons for them in that. Yeah. And it's sort of, it's not even a cycle. It's sort of a rite of passage almost. You know, when I started covering hate um, a few years ago and I did it, like I said, I did it on and off because I just, it it is too much to, to cover on a day-to-day basis. So when I started covering it a few years ago, I looked to people in the Jew community, people in the Black community, people in the Indigenous communities, and, and looked at the stories that they wrote and the writing that they did and the conversations they were having to inform the conversations I wanted to have about what was happening to the Muslim community or or how they were being targeted at the time, whether it was, you know, the Quebec mall shooting to the London attack most recently and everything in between. And the sad part is there's so many parallels that you learn because everyone's having sort of a similar conversation in every community. And as a reporter, suddenly the job became not just to talk about that one bad thing that happened to Canadian Muslims, but to also remind them that, hey, this has happened before to this community and this community and this community and this community and this community. And and, and sort of build bridges and create links and show just how systemic and how widespread something like hate can be. Um, and it really showed me how journalism needed to evolve to have more of a holistic approach because you can't just cover it as one single story when it's part of this huge narrative that still is ongoing and has been going on for for many, many years. And I think that's the tough task where ever since, I would say since 9-11, we sort of come hate from tragedy to tragedy, from attack to attack, incident to incident. But the most powerful and most effective conversations we can have is to link it all together, right? To actually show the threads that bind and show the systemic failures that have led from one to another, to another, to another. And and I think journalism and journalists are, you know, are, are grappling with that and trying to do the best they can with the constraints of the job. But sometimes it's really hard and, and it's very heavy. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. It is, you know, even just trying to research, it is a bit like trying to look into a black hole every day. And it's, it's very dark, but I can't imagine, you know, your job as a journalist is to convey that in 700 words sometimes. And <laughs> exactly. that's at least, at least academics, we get a, like a good 10,000 in there in our reports. But um, let me, let me just look at some of the responses that we've seen to the incidents that we that have occurred this year. Shortly after the June 6 attack, terrorism charges were brought against the attacker, someone who I'm not going to name. But it's believed to be the first time that someone who is associated with the far right has had a terrorism charge uh, put upon them. And while some have really, you know, welcomed these charges, others have expressed concern that simply applying them to more groups can help to strengthen a regime that's still disproportionately used against marginalized populations. And, you know, I'm wondering in, in maybe your own views, but also in your reporting, how do you think these charges were seen in the Muslim community? 
I think they were welcome. I think any effort to bring, you know, attackers to justice is 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 welcome. I think there was a little bit of shock as well because it, those charges were applied without any conversation about proof. And, and I think a lot of people still have questions about how did the police know to so quickly apply these charges and, and what are they not telling us? And are there more like him in, in the community that we need to you know protect ourselves from? And, and again, oftentimes in this, it's a battle of communications, right? Because of the legality of these cases and how sensitive they are uh, and how complicated they are, oftentimes we don't get the full picture. And for the communities that are hurting, you want all the information so you can take steps to protect yourself, but then also to start, you know, raising awareness and educating others on how to approach these kind of situations, because unfortunately they keep happening again and again. So it's sort of like a mixture of shock and confusion and just a sigh of relief as well that, there was no, um, you know, dilly dallying on the fact that this was a crime and it was a targeted crime and it can only be called an act of terrorism. You know, had the police not acted as swiftly as it did to apply those charges, we would be having a much different conversation about, you know, what will it take? And I think this is the first time in in my memory, at least, that the the police just did it. No, no questions, no pressure, no uh, justification or anything like that. And, and again, we know from tons of research and past coverage that these cases don't usually get terrorism charges unless, unfortunately, the person in question is a racialized person who attacks a white community. Think of, oh, I'm going to forget the... Alexander Bissonnette or... Um... Thank you. Yes. Think of yeah. Alexander Bissonnette or I'm thinking of the attacker who Justin targeted Bork? the LA nightclub. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember yeah, yeah. his name. But, you know, those kind of folks who are racialized people who attack largely white situations. Here was a white man who targeted a brown family and he was charged with terrorism. And that was a stark shift. I've never seen that before. And so it was a positive thing. Again, as perverted as it sounds to, to find positive out of tragedy, it was a positive thing to occur. And it will be interesting to learn more about how the police, what kind of evidence the police had to, to make that charge. So there was some reporting by just for our audience, there was some reporting, I think, done by Stuart Bell at Global News earlier this year, which suggested that there had been a binder or some kind of manifesto found where this person does seem to have been influenced by far-right extremists. Now, we'll still have to see where these charges go. But yeah, I mean, it is, I, I was curious as to your view, because we've also heard, I think it expressed by some civil liberties advocates that it's good that like crime is being treated in the same way, but these crimes are still disproportionately used against the uh, racialized Canadians, as it were. So it's, it's always a, a challenge because some people say that these charges have been used in a, in a disproportionate way and that, okay, you have this one charge, but is that really going to change things? Has, have you, have you heard any of that in your, in your own reporting or coverage of these issues? Or, you know, is, do you think that this is really just the way forward? I mean, I hope it's the way forward. And I often get called a naive and idealistic for, for thinking that way, because history has shown that it's not always the case. And, and there, there's still doubt, I think, in the Muslim community that maybe this is a one-off case. And, and maybe it's because of, you know, one thing that comes up time and time again, when you report on these kind of things is, 
what case actually grabs national attention and and not national just national attention but systemic attention and and this one did you know and I, and i you know my my sense is it's because of the way it happened you know it's the fact that they were on a walk as a family and that's one of the most innocent things that you can be doing especially during the pandemic and and then this this driver comes out of nowhere and rams into them i think it's just the way the event actually unfolded that grabbed the national attention and and you could see yourself being that family no matter what your color creed geographical location was um and and maybe that's you know those i've spoken to many people who question you know maybe it's just the fact that it's this case it's this case and the way it happened that led to these charges and such a serious consideration by police and by the legal system and i, I can't you know you can't even hate people for for having that doubt because they've been they've been hurt by the systems time and time again they haven't been given justice enough times for them to believe that such incidents can be punished and and can be curbed by you know our our courts and our and our policing institutions so there is that doubt always in my brain but i like to you know i'm a glass half full kind of person I think I have to be when you cover these many events absolutely Um, and 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 I believe that at at a certain point when enough history and enough narratives pile on you can't help but change your tune right and and maybe it takes decades maybe it takes like sometimes it takes a short time but when it comes to hate as we're seeing it more and more in an online and public forum, as we're understanding it more and more, I think our institutions are are learning to better respond to it and and to take better consideration. Again, without knowing how the police got to the charges that they got to, um, I can't say what the process is, but I, I like to believe that, you know, they have a wealth of information now. This is a new and, and, the definition of terrorism has evolved. The definition of crimes have evolved. The understanding of communities has evolved. And all of that is sort of adding up to hopefully better judgments. And maybe this is the first in, you know, a long string. Hopefully there are no more cases, but if there are, you know, a long string of of positive responses to really, really hard moments. So, Again, maybe taking the glass half full perspective here, and and I, I definitely appreciate, I, or at least I think I appreciate where you're coming from there. We we did we also saw a summit this year on Islamophobia, where promises were made to do more to tackle the problem. In your mind, do you think anything positive came out of the summit, or you know, is there any hope that you that the issue is being taken more seriously, even if progress is minimal? So, I have to preface this by saying that my my faith in political institutions is deeply, deeply damaged at this moment in time, not just when it comes to hate, but when it comes to really anything, especially with what we've seen during the pandemic. And I have watched for the last several years, the government's approach to reconciliation, for example, and and how, you know, that is a case where the roadmap 
has been laid out so clearly and in so much detail by commission after commission, by court case after court case, and government leaders have been unable to walk that road. And, and they haven't been able to provide a critical and logical and sensible decision for, for their inability to walk down that road. You know, the thing that I hear it time and time again is it's really difficult. It's going to take time. And, and I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but every day, every month, every year that passes, you wonder, okay, but are you, are you not? Things are difficult. You still doesn't mean that you don't try and you don't take one step after the other. And I bring up reconciliation because, you know, targeting hate is also difficult. And that the same language that is used for reconciliation or the same language that is used for climate change is also used for hate. And, and unfortunately, here is another case where the roadmap has been laid out and yet they all we hear are positive words and positive messages and positive intentions to do things. But when it comes to actual pledges or actions, things always fall a little short. And the summit was one example of that, right? It was a nice multi-partisan moment. They all came together to listen to people talk about what they needed, to show empathy, to stand together, all the usual things. But what happened after that? The answer is nothing. Uh, nothing has an changed election where we summit. couldn't talk about Bill C-21. An election where the conservative platform didn't even include the word racism, you know, an election where we, we really didn't even talk about hate or how to protect communities seriously. An election where Quebec's Bill 21, which is an example of how the legal system can be abused to codify the sentiments that lead to racism and hate and encourage it, if, if not explicitly, then implicitly, um, was shut down as a federal election topic. So I'm I'm starting, not even starting, I have serious doubt when it comes to political action and willingness to do things beyond quote unquote summits that seem nice on paper, but not that doesn't really do anything to change lives for the better. Interesting. I mean, thanks for that. It's, it's, yeah, you introduced yourself as someone with the glass half full, but that's like, that's throwing the glass. I, I, <laughs> the thing is, I believe in change and I, I, I always believe in change. I think human, one of the great things about humanity is that it can change, but you know, it's, 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 there are only so many chances you can give someone. And, and, and at this moment in time, like in 20, December 2021, after everything we've been through for the past two years, or even just this year alone, I'm running out of chances to give. And I'm also at a place where I'm extremely tired for to keep battling and to keep pushing back on the same exact things. Like I'm happy to fight if the conversation is evolving, you know, but it's not evolving. I'm still pushing back on the same language, on the same dialogue, on the same word. Like I get it. You stand with communities who have been targeted targets of hate. I get it. I even believe you. I don't think anyone can be so bad that they can't see a community that is hurting. But what the bleep are you going to do about it? And they can't answer that. Oh, we will provide funds in a security infrastructure pot or something like that. I'm like, 
cool, that's one thing. What else? Because it's like deeply systemic. And and the, you know, every organization that works in this space has listed the to-do list and and they're just they're just they just gotta literally put them in a hat, pick one and do it. And and they're not doing it. So I do believe they can change and I really, really hope they can change. And that's why I keep having these conversations, even if they're sporadically, because somewhere I, I'm, I'm hopeful that someone is listening and being like, okay, yes, let's just do it. It's, let's just do it. But it just doesn't happen. Right. No, I, I can definitely sense your frust- like very justified frustration there. And I think, I think, you know, this is something we, we see people talking about. So honestly, thanks for, for sharing that. One thing that, you know, you mentioned there, and I think we mentioned earlier uh, in the recording was that you've been covering issues again, with regards to not just Islamophobia and attacks, but also you've been writing about the anti-lockdown movement, and the pandemic among your fun. I, I should note that, you know, you cover all the fun things, climate change, you know, a hate and it, now the anti-lockdown movement, the pandemic. I, yeah, it's a heavy load, but I guess, you know, what are your concerns with that moving going forward and how it intersects with some of the, you know, the hate challenges you've, you've identified? I, I mean, it's hard not to notice that the same people who are at the anti-lockdown protests are the same people who are part of hate movement, um, like hate movements. It, it's just, it's impossible to not make that connection and, and pick those people. And, and I am not a psychologist. I don't know why it's, it's sort of like, you know, intersecting in this way, but the Venn diagram is very, very clear on these two groups. And that's concerning because, you know, for me, the biggest challenge that the government isn't addressing is education. It's, it's having dialogues with the people who maybe need dialogue. And this might be this might be the group to start with. This, this intersection between far right and anti-lockdown is deeply troubling. And, you know, the same people that used to attack me for covering issues of hate are the same people who attacked me when I started writing about the pandemic. And they're the same people who attack me when I write about climate action. And, and I have to just wonder what is going on there. I'm not like, you know, I'm, I very much respect every individual's right to have their own opinion and, and right to believe what they believe. But when so much science and so much fact and so much rationale is being denied by a certain group in our society, we have to wonder what is going on, what exactly is leading them to think these things and to push back on these things so vigorously. And is there something we can do to talk to them about it? And I don't right. have the answer to that other than to say that, you know, it's been very difficult to be on the receiving end of their their thoughts and their comments and their emails. And there's nothing I can personally say to them that would help them understand what I'm writing or what I'm reporting. But there is a belief on their side that I should understand what they are saying and what they believe and what they are disagreeing with. So it's, it's this impossible fight we're in. It's not of wits. It's not of beliefs. It's just of rhetoric. And, and I don't know how to get out of it. And I don't think anyone knows how to get out of it except to maybe try and engage with some of them and see what's going on. You know, one of the biggest pleasures of 2021 for me was to talk to someone who was a deep 
diehard PPC supporter. Yeah, I was um, going to mention that. I was, <laughs> was going to be the next question. I'm like, you actually did this. You you actually, on your podcast, The Backbench, and I would recommend it to anybody, you actually sit down and talk to a PPC you know, member, supporter, and about that. And, and you know, that's interesting that you actually... Maybe, maybe you're crafting solutions for us as we, as we do this pod. But what was that like? And why did you take that decision? I took that decision because when he emailed me, um, I was taken by surprise because this wasn't a man who was attacking me. He was defending himself. And, and I find that that was a very rare approach. I, I, as someone who gets a lot of hate mail, much of it attacks you. Very few, if at all, defend themselves from your beliefs. So this was a guy who decided that, you know, he had respect for my work and even if he disagreed with it and he engaged with my work on a constructive level, at least seemingly. And then he went into why he thought that I was being too hard on what he believed in or how I didn't fully understand what community he was coming from. And I thought that was refreshing. Again, as perverted as it sounds, I thought that was refreshing. It wasn't a piece of hate mail. It was someone who disagreed with me on a fundamental level and wanted to correct what he thought I said was wrong. And I don't usually reply to random emails from readers unless there's like a question in it that I can help verify very quickly or, or you know, something that really, really, you know, creates that urge in me that I want to respond to this person. And those are very rare. But this guy, his email was so moving. It was really moving. You know, he, the impulse he described of just, you know, listening to my, my podcast episode of having a visceral reaction to what I said of wanting to explain to me why I was wrong to call the PPC racist and why he felt hurt to be, to hear that was very moving. And, and so I started a dialogue with him, not knowing where it would lead. And suddenly, you know, it became just like a wonderful dialogue. Look, I was raised by the West Wing, okay? And I believe in talking to people who are different <laughs> than you and, and learning from them. I don't think you can live in a silo. And and when he agreed to speak to me and, and share our conversation with everyone, I was truly moved, you know, I don't think we do enough of that in the world. And, and maybe, you know, if you can get past the angry emotions and the hate and the, the, the foul language and just have conversations with people who think differently, maybe we can, we can build an understanding um, between these anti-lockdown, far-right climate deniers, you know, this guy disagrees with me on immigration policy, but he's happy I'm here. <laughs> you know, he 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 just disagrees with he ha he wants the government to take a different approach so to better serve the immigrant community. And we might disagree on on that approach, but we could have a constructive dialogue about it. And, and him and I are never going to see eye to eye. And, and we both know that. 
but we have mad respect for each other and, and our abilities to, to think differently and, and to maybe reconcile some of the, those thoughts. He's convinced me on some things. I've convinced him on some other things. And I think that's what good political and social discourse looks like. And it's rare. And, and I would like to do more of that, except the other side, if I can give them a blanket title like that, is often very angry and very foul and calls me weird hurtful names but if they didn't I'd be happy to talk to them it's interesting it's all about the approach I mean it's it's hard to replicate that kind of interaction I think on a mass scale oh it's very rare yeah and but I think you know putting it out there on a podcast helps to make it (laughs) or is is a little it's inspiring but I'm gonna you'd be surprised I got I got emails from so many PPC folks after that I put out that podcast episode like so many people who admitted to me that they were PPC voters and they were really grateful that I was able to put a conversation like that out in the world and you know and and shared similar sentiments that you know they joined the PPC because they wanted politics to be different the PPC then changed and became something that was about not that (laughs) and 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 then they were sort of struggling trying to find a space that allowed them to have conversations about their political leanings and their political views in a in a way that they wanted to and and the the episode really helped them find a connection to that and I was really surprised so there is an appetite there really is an appetite. That's what I learned from from putting out that episode. There's just no one trying to have those conversations. So I just want to say that's it's just really interesting, and I, I really appreciate you explaining that and explaining your you know approach that you took in that podcast because I think it was important as we're looking at you know how do we address this issue of hate, but you know, in, in constructive ways that maybe isn't just about criminal justice or charges or throwing money, as you said, at a community fund that no one ever really seems to know how it works. But I, I, I want to shift now to uh, one of your other roles, which is that of the Canadian Association of Journalists Vice President. And I'm wondering about your view when it comes to reporting on national security um, and security issues, because I think there's always been this useful tension, right, between national security institutions and reporters. Like you want, you don't want that relationship to be cozy. You want it to be inherently adversarial, not hostile, but adversarial. But, you know, I think in recent weeks, we've, you know, there's, we've seen the RCMP arrest journalists covering an Indigenous protest in, in British Columbia. And in the past, we've seen the RCMP take journalists to court in order to get their notes. And, you know, those, these are the incidents that I think can really break, you know, turn that adversarial relationship into something that is more difficult, and more hostile. So I'm wondering, like, what should we make of these incidents? And how should we think about that relationship? Oof, okay, big question. Um, So I've been thinking about this a lot. It's a massive problem. And the reason why it's massive is because there are so many issues tied to policing institutions and national security institutions that have to be covered, right? That's number one, whether it's local provincial, federal, global, you know, our our national security institutions need to be covered by journalists, both from a a lens of accountability to also a lens of better understanding how these forces work, because they're a major part of what keeps us safe in theory and what keeps communities, um, you know, together and protected. They play a massive role. At the same time, these institutions are majorly flawed. 
And the, the communities that they hurt the most are BIPOC communities. They are racialized communities. No person of color will ever stand up and say that they have a good relationship of the police or that every time they see a police car drive by or they have to go through airport security or they see an army vehicle that they, you know, stop breathing for a second or freeze in place or, you know, just just walk slower or something like that, you know. And that tension, and the reason I bring that up is because as journalism evolves to become, quote unquote, more diverse, that tension is at play majorly. And we saw that recently when two, um, with the two things that happened in the last several months in Canada, the first was that two journalists got arrested for covering, you know, the uh, efforts of the Wet'suwet'en people to uh, defend their land from the coastal gasoline pipeline project in BC. And the second thing that happened is a lot of journalists were targets of a massive hate campaign, most of women of color, and they felt so unsafe that they looked to those institutions for help. And both those things also happened after a year where police institutions, local and provincial and federal clashed with journalists. I'm thinking of how Toronto police clashed with journalists when, you know, they were trying to cover the removal of the encampments for homeless people in in Toronto parks that happened in Nova Scotia as well. And, and so many more cases. Um, It's a massive problem that I do not have a solution for other than to say that, you know, I, as in my capacity as the VP of the CAJ, I was questioned when you know we put out statements or we provided updates that we are trying to engage with the police in dialogue as one of the few journalists of color on the CAJ board made told and made to feel that I wasn't a good ally because how dare I engage with police when we know that they treat racialized communities badly How dare I engage with police when it's just futile? They're not going to do anything. They're not going to change anything. All points I agree with, by the way. I do think that the policing institutions need to have a serious internal conversation about the lack of trust in them from racialized communities and, and others across this country and beyond. The problem is, if you don't engage with an institution that is deeply flawed, you also can't affect change. And that's the struggle right now, where you have multiple media institutions, including the CAJ, including, you know, the, the, the publications that represented the journalists that got arrested or the journalists that were targets of hate, trying to talk to police merely to understand what the F is going on inside their institution, where their response to these things is so lackluster. Forget the fact that access is a whole other issue that we're not even talking about right now, because getting access to information from national security institutions is like, it's just, it doesn't exist. Like, how do you do it? If you go through the FOI or ATIP system, you will have to wait decades. If you try and get an interview, you will be denied time and time again. And then if you try to cover it, you'll get arrested or you'll you'll be turned away. There's literally no winning when it comes to access. So it's starting a dialogue seemed like the first step in a very long journey that we had to take to figure out how to mend this relationship 
and not even mend it, how to just create a relationship that wasn't adversarial, that wasn't hurting journalists. And I don't think we have all the solutions. Uh, I think we're, we're trying to figure it out. But, you know, I went into a police precinct for the first time in my life to get interviewed about the piece of hate mail that I received this year. And it was deeply traumatizing, even though it was like a friendly interview, a willing interview on my part to, to do, you know, it wasn't under force or anything like that, but you know, I don't know if if anyone sat in an interrogation room, but just being in that environment is very, very scary and, and very, it shakes you. Um, but you try. I learned a lot about how policing works or doesn't work. And and then you go from there. I, I am, as, as again, as naive and idealistic as it sounds, I do believe you have to engage with the flaws of society to try and change them or to try and put a spotlight on them so that they do become undeniable, that you do raise public awareness about it and figure it out. Um And that's where my head's at right now as we're ending the year, right? Like we have learned a lot about the failures of national security institutions this year, whether it's the Canadian military and, you know, how it's been plagued by sexual misconduct and how it can't seem to fix that, or whether it's local policing stations and and their treatment of journalists or uh, their lack of focus on, on journalists who are targeted. There is a clearly a lot of work to do. From a community perspective, people doubt whether they will come to their aid and protect them in the way that they want. From a journalism perspective, there's doubt whether they can actually meaningfully allow for this kind of coverage and this kind of constructive work to take place. And and from just like a societal perspective, I think, you know, I, I look, you know, when you were younger and you read those like children's book where the police is the hero and, you know, a police comes and he's like glowing in angelic light and, and he's going to save you and protect you from the child, you're the playground bully or whatever. That feeling doesn't exist anymore. And, and it's because of all the things that have piled up over the years that the police have done and also have not done everything from George Floyd to here in Canada, which, you know, we've seen similar things. We saw a police step on an indigenous, a senior indigenous man in, in BC. And he also screamed, I can't breathe. So I grapple with it. I struggle with it a lot. And, and all I can hope is maybe dialogue, maybe pressure, maybe continuing public conversation will keep the issue in the spotlight. Unfortunately, we're all very tired and we get tired because of how heavy all these conversations are. But what I'm not one to sit still either. So, you know, if, if the least, if the only thing I can do is keep the conversation going and keep the doors open, that's what I'll do. And we'll see where it gets to. Right. That's, I mean, it's a very long tirade. (laughs) No, it is. But I mean, I think it's really interesting. And the point that you make about, well, journalism is becoming more diverse and that some of the issues with the law enforcement, national security and policing in this country is about, you know, questions about systemic racism and stuff that that was a really, really interesting point that you made. And I hadn't thought about that before. And and could that be behind some of the, the issues that we're seeing? But also the other really positive thing I've taken from this interview that we've done, and I, I appreciate all your time, is how, you know, your willingness to talk to people who don't share your view, right? Your willingness <laughs> to speak with, you know, a PPC reporter, your willingness to speak to police, your willingness to, you know, speak to to different groups of people. I mean, and that's going to be the way, I mean, I think one of the problems we have is is not having conversations 
now people being in their kind of bubble and willing being willing to burst that bubble, I think is, is really good. So I'm, I'm going to leave it with this last question here, which is, you know, I've already mentioned that you've covered issues from climate change to hosting your own show, which again is the backbench and you definitely should listen to and support if you, if you, if you haven't already. Do you, do you have advice for individuals who are thinking about? Oh man. Uh, <laughs> you know, as the industry, the industry isn't perfect. It, it, it is dealing with a lot of challenges, everything from business models to, well, hate. For me, journalism is a public service. And not only in the sense that it is the thing that shapes and defines the discourse of the day, of the year, of the time, but it also empowers people. And I, there's no better year for me to have learned that than 2021. You know, I was privileged enough to be able to write about Peel region, which is, you know, a very large region in Ontario, but very little known across the country and how important it is and how hard hit it was during the pandemic. And seeing that community just be empowered by the fact that someone wrote about them and that it garnered so much attention was incredibly moving. You know, seeing someone like Derek, the PPC voter I, I wrote, and his conversation with me empower others who also thought about him to email me to to feel validated in the political discourse was very moving to me. You know, seeing uh, Muslims feel empowered after, you know, all the things that they are continuing to deal with, whether it's Bill 21 or hate or whatever, um, because people were writing about them before, because people were including their voices was incredibly moving. Journalism matters so much to me. And I think the only way you win at something like this job is if you care about it. And if you, if you, if you weigh the responsibility with just how much fun it can also be at moments, even when you're covering the hardest times. So my advice is don't just do it because it feels like a cool thing to do. There's a big responsibility when it comes to being a journalist, especially, especially in the times that we're in, whether you're covering the pandemic or national security or climate change, there is a heavy responsibility to do good, ethical, fair, balanced, nuanced, deep journalism that can counter all the forces at play from misinformation to hate to ignorance to completely opposing ideologies and and more um and it sounds like i'm scaring people but it's really just a reminder that what you do as a journalist can have a huge impact when you're least expecting it some of the work i did this year i would not like if you had asked me while now while i was doing it that it would have any impact i would have said no no one's going to read this especially like the Peel region stuff <laughs> or, or some of the podcast. I'm like, yeah, no one's going to read this. And it changed discourse. And, and I feel very lucky to have been part of that. So it's a responsibility. It is a job. It is a cool job. You learn a lot and it's fun. And, and you, you engage with cool people like yourself, but it is a responsibility. And, and I have to more than ever, I've been reminded of that this year. And, and that's my, that's my message to all journalists or wannabe journalists. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for joining us today and just providing your insights after a a pretty hellacious year that you've, you know, but one where I think you've made an impact on a number of stories. So thank you so much. And I really look forward to seeing what comes in 2022. And maybe, who knows, maybe you can cover a good news story. 
<laughs> Fingers crossed. Cheers. Thank you so much. Thanks, Stephanie.